From the recreational drug use side of things, I think uh, the increased accessibility of pharmacists and the ability of pharmacists to provide naloxone, have those discussions, to counsel those patients right there, answer questions, um, and make it available is really impactful. There is a direct uh, correlation with how much naloxone is getting out to lay people in the public and the uh, or the mortality associated with opioid overdoses, which is dramatic and very important. Welcome to the Pharmacy Quality Solutions Quality Corner Show where we believe that quality measurement leads to better outcomes. Let us become your go-to source for all things related to quality and medication use in healthcare. We will hit on trending health topics as they relate to performance measurements and find common ground for payers and practitioners. We will discuss how the Equip platform can help you with your performance goals, and we will also make sure to keep you up to date on pharmacy quality news. So buckle up and put your thinking cap on. The Quality Corner Show starts now. Hello, Quality Corner Show listeners. This is your host, Nick Dorich, and we welcome you to the PQS Quality Corner Show. For this month of April 2021, we are focusing on opioid management. Specifically, we intend to focus on how pharmacists and providers can continue to provide adequate management for patients while also reducing risk or harm for patients. Attention is often paid to the steps being taken to address the opioid problem, but the care of the patient cannot be forgotten. Fortunately, we have many pharmacists that are working to improve patient care related to opioid use. Today's guest, and yes, I said guest as in plural, are going to speak with us about opioid management, harm reduction, and opioid reversing agents. Now, I'm going to introduce our guest, those being Marissa Brizzy and Dan Arendt, both from the UC Health in Cincinnati, Ohio. Yes, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and, again, happy to discuss more about this passion of mine and dance. So. Yeah, thank you for having us. Happy to be here, Nick, and uh, to be able to chat with you. Well, thank you both for being on the show today. And before we begin, it's always best to get a little bit of an autobiography from our guest and understand what your role is as a pharmacist, what you've done previously, and uh, why you're on the show to talk about this today. So Marissa, let's start with you, if you can provide a little bit of your background and current role. And then uh, once you're done, Dan, you can do the same. Absolutely. So my background, I grew up in Florida and I went to University of Florida for both undergrad and pharmacy school. After completing my PharmD there, I went ahead and pursued residency in Chicago. So I did my first year of pharmacy residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago in Chicago, Illinois. Um, and then I decided to stay on for a second year of residency that was focused on HIV primary care. So during that time, I kind of did a lot with not only just HIV, but I tried to learn a little bit more about infectious diseases in general, how to treat those. And then I also had a, a pretty big passion for management of chronic pain, opioid use disorder, harm reduction, those types of things. So I helped kind of get a clinic off the ground that focused on patients who inject drugs. So kind of treatment for those infections, screening, harm reduction resources, all of those things as well. So that's kind of where my passion came from. And, and then I was able to luckily land a great position here in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, focused on pain stewardship in general, which includes many things, one of which is also harm reduction. Thanks, Marissa. And Dan, over to you. 
Yeah. So, uh, so I'm originally from the Buffalo, New York area and moved down to Ohio for school at the University of Toledo. Um, so I got my bachelor's in pharmaceutical sciences there um, and then my doctor of pharmacy there. After spending my years in Toledo, I went and did a, a PGY-1 residency at University Hospital's Geauga Medical Center, which is out near Cleveland, Ohio. And then I stayed on for a second year in internal medicine and academia, which was both um, at that same hospital out near Cleveland, but also at Northeast Ohio Medical University. While I was there, I, I was in internal medicine, but I did a lot of pain management. Um, we were a small community hospital where we had one pain management physician uh, that I worked very close with and developed a few different pain management initiatives with her. And that really sparked my passion and interest for pain management and uh, seeing a ton of uh, patients while they were in the hospital with both acute pain issues and chronic pain issues and patients who had chronic pain issues but had a whole different acute pain issue while they were in the hospital. So there were there were multiple multiple levels of challenges there and I loved doing it. I think it's a little bit of something in medicine where you're really able to meet with the patients and there's both an art and a science to pain management, um, which I think is really enjoyable. And that's kind of how I found my way uh, down here to Cincinnati and, and working in pain stewardship. Thank you both for those introductions. And Dan and Marissa, what I hear from both of you is really meshing up with the commentary we've heard from other guests in this series or as we're prepping other guests in this series. And it's it's something I like to call out. It's that we're having pharmacists really working hands-on with many other providers and, and hands-on with that patient. It's, it's something in the pharmacy world we often talk about that it needs to happen more often. And we see a lot of examples related to opioid management where it's actively occurring. Now, we'll go ahead and we'll jump into today's conversation. And uh, before we do, I want to provide a quick overview of what comes next. We've got a couple of questions that are written down for us to explore. I'll go down the list, ask the first question, and then uh, Marissa and or Dan, you'll each get to respond to those. I may have some summary or follow-up questions that lead to some back and forth to summarize the key points. We're going to repeat that for the second and third questions, and then that wraps up our content for this recording. Uh, but when we, when we do get to the end, we're going to have a little bit of a fun and perhaps non-pharmacy related question for both of you. So we look forward to getting your expertise for that question. Now with that, let's go ahead and we'll jump into question one. As we mentioned at the top, we're here to talk about harm reduction. We're here to talk about opioid reversing agents and how it relates to opioid use. To my knowledge, the concept of harm reduction has been around since the 1980s and the availability of opioid reversing agents such as naloxone is a relatively new, newer concept compared to that, but certainly has been around for some time. Now, rather than me having read off a website about what is harm reduction and how it relates to opioid use, I'd really like to hear from, from you as the experts related to this, because I'm sure you could do a much more comprehensive job and it'll come a lot more naturally. Marissa, you already mentioned this in your introduction that your focus in many ways is on harm reduction. So can you give us a background on related to the opioid use? What is harm reduction? How does this tie into patient care? And from a practice standpoint, what does that look like? Yes, absolutely. So harm reduction is simply reducing negative consequences of drug use. And we're focusing on opioids. It's the negative consequences of opioid use. So that involves a variety of things, um, which I'll go into in a minute. It's also really focused on, you know, providing social justice to those people who are 
maybe who inject drugs or have opioid addiction to give them the rights to things that they might need to help reduce harm. Um, so it's not trying to coerce them to do anything. It's not trying to, you know, force anyone to do anything that you feel is right, but it's really reaching out to patients, seeing what they need, seeing what they, you know, what they want in terms of helping them reduce harm associated with opioid use. So in terms of what that involves in our, you know, in the work that we do, there's a bunch of different aspects of harm reduction that we can try to implement in the health system. So the most common one that most people know about that you mentioned is the naloxone rescue use. So increasing access to naloxone, providing education on naloxone, not only to patients, but to providers who may not be aware of the role of naloxone, especially today, as we have seen those rise in opioid-related overdoses. It also involves um, syringe services programs, which is kind of an umbrella of a lot of things as well. Um, the most basic definition of that is just providing clean syringes to patients, as well as sometimes even taking back those used syringes to help reduce the spread of things like HIV and hepatitis. Um, within that, also, you want to make sure with harm reduction, you can help screen for HIV and hepatitis, as well as prevent those things. So syringe exchange or syringe services programs is one of those aspects of helping prevent infection. But you can also help screen them. So do testing for HIV, testing for hepatitis to identify maybe who has, you know, one or the other or both. And then also offering treatment for those things. So offering treatment for hepatitis C. So even patients who are actively injecting should be offered treatment for hepatitis C, because if you think about it, if they're actively injecting, you want to make sure you can cure them of their hepatitis C so they do not continue to spread hepatitis as well. There's also a lot of data supporting treating patients who are actively injecting still. It's pretty rare for them to get reinfected with hepatitis C, but still you want to make sure you closely monitor them beyond that. You can also provide vaccinations for hepatitis A and hepatitis B um, if you notice they're not you know, vaccinated. When it comes to HIV, you can offer things like prevention. So we call it PrEP. It's pre-exposure prophylaxis, which as you probably started to see commercials, we have um, newer agents that we can use oral therapy, one tablet once a day. We've got two options now. We have tenofovir and emtricitabine, which are both those oral options. The older version is the older tenofovir. The newer version is the newer tenofovir or TAF, we like to call it. Soon coming to the market is our first ever injectable version of PrEP. It's cabotegravir, which will get, be given as an injection for patients as well to help prevent HIV. So all of these are options that we can use to help prevent infection. Other, other parts of harm reduction are also things like fentanyl test strips. So providing patients access to test strips to see if there's fentanyl in you know, whatever they're injecting. And with that information, they can either have a partner with them or have naloxone on hand so that they know if something does happen, there's someone there to help them. And then there's also the medication for opioid use disorder. So the actual treatment aspect of things as well, which has been very successful in reducing opioid overdoses and those types of things over time. Um, the last thing I will touch on for harm reduction is also safe sex practices. So um, that's also involved with, you know, helping reduce the spread of HIV and hepatitis. So providing things like condoms and counseling, as well as counseling just for mental health and those types of peer support programs that you can provide. I think those are all kind of aspects of harm reduction that we try to bring, especially to our patients who inject as well as patients who use, you know, anything for opioid use disorder as well. Marissa, thanks for that overview. And I, I think as you went down the list, there were a number of items, they, they kept coming in. And as I was making a checklist of what I could, 
it, it came back to the idea you started with. It's getting patients to do or to understand the right thing, um, but doing it on their own volition, really. And uh, when it when it came to this, you talked about you've set up clinics uh, either at your prior site, your current site. As you went down that list, the the question that comes to me is: Does a pharmacist need to be involved? directly with a primary care provider or with an ambulatory care site for patients? Or is this something that really any pharmacist or any pharmacy can do? Because things like uh, syringe exchange, as an example, right? Every pharmacy does that. Uh, vaccination screenings, that's something that really any pharmacy can do. But there's some things here that are a little bit more in-depth. So wanted to get your thoughts uh, on that. Is it something that every pharmacist can and should be doing currently? Or are there other steps that make it a little bit more useful? So I think there's a lot of opportunity for pharmacy to take the lead in terms of harm reduction and like for also you mentioned a lot of great examples, but even access to naloxone, those types of things, pharmacists can really screen and provide access to these resources to patients. I will say some of the more in-depth parts of harm reduction, so things like treatment of hepatitis C or providing prep, those types of things you might need a physician's visit just to kind of get those baseline labs those types of things. Not to say the pharmacists can't do that while they're in the clinic with the physicians. So, you know, when I was in the helping establish a clinic in Chicago, one of the guidelines was for hepatitis C, what labs do we need? How often do we need to draw these labs? How often do we need to see these patients? What's the plan after they're treated for their hepatitis? Who should we connect them with for that long-term management of, you know, the liver disease in general? And then also with hepatitis C treatment comes a lot of prior authorizations and insurance barriers. So that heavily relies on pharmacists, but you need a pretty good pharmacy team to, you know, get access to the drug and provide the patient the drug. And when it comes to patients who are actively injecting, what we did is we only provided one week of therapy at a time because there are some barriers, especially if someone's homeless, they may not have a safe place to store these medications. They're very expensive. You really don't get second chances with them. So having a place where they can come see their pharmacist every week to receive their medications, as well as integrate that with labs and treatment for Suboxone, they could come and get their Suboxone that week and their Hep C meds and their, you know, vaccinations and their labs, all that to one place is really helpful. So there are some barriers with the laboratory aspect of it, where we, the pharmacists probably can't do anything from like their community pharmacy. But as more pharmacies are integrating things like on-site access to labs and those types of things. I think it's certainly something in our future that we can work towards. It's So everybody can do something to yeah. help with harm reduction, but not everybody can do everything or not or specifically when we're talking about pharmacists, not everybody can do everything. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Well, let's, let's go ahead and Dan, we're going to tag you in now and we'll talk about something that I, I think is starting to gain more notoriety as, as a service that can be available at pretty much many pharmacy locations are as much more commonplace now, maybe not as commonplace as we would like it to be, but it's getting there. And we're going to talk about opioid reversing agents, naloxone access. And this is a topic that I've been familiar with for over a decade. I, I did some projects myself uh, when I was on my APPE rotations in the state of Rhode Island and working with the, the board of pharmacy there and Jeff Bratberg on some items related to naloxone access, which I thought at the time was pretty uh, cutting edge and interesting. And it's been very unique for me to see 
see it grow and expand since that time. But naloxone access, it still has many challenges or it may still have some detractors that's that's there for its accessibility. But how has utilization and accessibility of opioid reversing agents uh, at naloxone access, how has this improved? Uh, how has this changed how opioids are managed? And specifically, how does this help patients? Well, yeah, I think there's a there's a lot that's changed and developed over time with naloxone access and utilization. Um, and I think that's had a, a variety of impacts, um, both for people who, like what Marissa is talking about, people who use drugs, I think, or people who use opioids recreationally. I think it's it's important for that as well. Um, but it also has a, a phenomenal impact for patients who are using opioids medically and they are prescribed them and using them for pain. So I think we can kind of talk about both, uh, but it's also important to kind of segment that in a way to discuss the different ways that that access is changing in both of those situations. So naloxone access has really taken off and it's been something that very few people are against, which is nice. In harm reduction, there's unfortunately um, a lot of controversy with syringe exchanges and, and programs like that. There's a lot of pushback. Naloxone, there still is pushback, but not nearly as much, which makes it really nice and accessible to the public. Um, and here in Ohio, uh, being able to dispense it directly from the community pharmacy under a standing order, uh, things like that has made it much more accessible and has also made pharmacists much more accessible in care. From the recreational drug use side of things, I think uh, the increased accessibility of pharmacists and the ability of pharmacists to provide naloxone, have those discussions, to counsel those patients right there, answer questions, um, and make it available is really impactful. There is a direct uh, correlation with how much naloxone is getting out to lay people in the public and the uh, or the mortality associated with opioid overdoses, which is dramatic and very important. From the from the medical side, it is something that I think hasn't taken its full effect yet. I think it has a couple of impacts that it's making right now. But I think it has a couple impacts that I'm hoping increased accessibility will slowly start to make over time. That's something that we're working on. So what I mean by that is I think the recognition and availability of naloxone is making us take another look at what risks our patients have for a potential overdose. Um, I think there is a, a lot of looking out and saying, okay, well, uh, who is at risk? And right now, the majority of our opioid overdoses are actually responsible or being caused by uh, illicitly manufactured fentanyl that's in, a, in the drug supply. Um, not as much the prescription drug supply, it's uh, the recreational drug supply, but it's still out there. From the medicinal side, when we're talking about opioid use, really where we see the most risk is patients who are on really high doses, and primarily when we're changing those doses around, or if they're on other medications that are putting them at risk. So you're looking at patients with high-dose opioids, they're also on gabapentin and Xanax or another benzodiazepine or something like that. So it's getting us to take another look and say, okay, well, how are we making sure that we're keeping these patients safe? And it also takes another step to say, okay, well, is everything that they're on appropriate? Have we taken a look elsewhere at what medications they might need to be on? Which I think is good, but it also comes with a few different risks. And we've seen that over the last couple of years of a lot of patients who are 
it's almost the catch-22. A lot of patients who are on high-dose opioids, and they've maybe been on them for a long period of time for pain management, the, the more we've learned has really shown us that in a lot of those patients, it might not have been necessary to put them on those high of doses. And we probably could have done things differently. But unfortunately, that realization has been a little bit late. And what that's kind of led to is, is a lot of prescribers saying, oh, well, we need to reduce these doses drastically. This, this is a patient who might need naloxone. Oh my goodness, let's let's get them off and put them on uh, a proper regimen of Tylenol and ibuprofen and, and physical therapy and things like that instead, which is also having some negative impacts as well, which is actually really interesting. So one of them would be uh, patients coming down too quickly and being tapered inappropriately. So on, on the plus side, I think it's great for, for patients who are new initiates to potential long-term opioid therapy. It's something to think about and make you say, okay, well, before I go to this increased dose, have I done all that I need to make sure I'm taking care of this patient effectively before doing so? But it's also actually had some uh, potential negative concerns from being misapplied to saying patients who are already on that therapy trying to drastically change the stakes for them and, and go back to what we wish we might have done previously. So those are a couple a couple challenges with it. But I think overall, um, we're moving in a direction towards treating patients more appropriately, having this available for patients who might be at risk of an overdose, and then also reframing our opioid crisis is not necessarily where the only outcome that we're trying to avoid is addiction, but really going back and saying, the big issue here is people are dying um, and overdoses are happening. So how can we how can we get to that? And how can we value people not just as oh there's people and then there's people who are addicted to opioids, but no they're all people. And what we want to do is keep those people and keep those patients alive. And this is really that drug that lets us make sure we're doing that and kind of take our steps from there. So Dan, related to the naloxone use or accessibility, as I was, you know, working on my research for for this episode, was trying to find, and there's been different conversations across the years on issues for, you know, who pays for the naloxone? Is it covered with insurance, or, you know, do pharmacies get uh, paid for providing that, you know, service or consultation, et cetera? Are, are those challenges that we still kind of see today, or what what does that look like from the the patient perspective? If they're getting a high dose opioid, is it just assumed they're getting also uh, naloxone or or some other counseling? To what extent is that is that true? Yeah, that that is a that's a fantastic question. I think that's one of the historically been one of the bigger barriers is who's paying for it and how is it accessible. Um, I think in recent years it's become much, much, much more accessible in terms of price. Uh, most in uh, insurances are covering it where it's nearly zero dollar copays for patients. Um, and there's also a lot of grant funding out there. So for for me, for example, uh, so I carry naloxone. Um, I live in in the city. I don't doubt that sometime in my life I will I will come across someone who who might be experiencing an overdose and I want to make sure I have naloxone on me. So I went to the pharmacy myself actually to pick up naloxone earlier in the year. Uh, I found out that my insurance wasn't covering it and that it was going to be over a hundred dollars or so just to buy naloxone. So looking at that, I said, 
this is, I mean, I can, I can get this, but this is, this is a, this is a big problem for, for patients because who's going to, who's going to go and say, okay, well, I'm just going to go give $140 to insert chain pharmacy here right now for this naloxone. Um, so there's a lot of initiatives related to that. And most pharmacists, what you can do is, is you are likely going to be able to be dispensing this without a, uh, well, under a standing order prescription, and you'll see the patients who have that $0 copay. And for those who don't, uh, what I always encourage is to look up harm reduction initiatives in your area, um, because actually what it is in Ohio is all you can, all you need to do is fill out a little survey about who you are, like why you need naloxone and who you are. And we have programs that we're involved in that will ship it and mail it right to your door and provide you naloxone for free. Um, so I think pharmacies are really accessible for a lot of those patients. And we're seeing a lot more patients where the insurance is covering it and there aren't those economic barriers, but when they still exist and a patient isn't getting it through those traditional pharmacy means, um, there's still other opportunities available that you can really make a difference for patients by getting them access to that naloxone, um, even if it's not through insurance. And I, I hope to see those partner with a lot of our pharmacies in the future as well through those programs. So when when insurance is a barrier, when the when the payment is a barrier, they don't even have to wait for that mail-in naloxone kit. It can be right there for them. Thanks, Dan. Now we'll take these two conversations for Marissa and Dan for your parts. And I want to bring them together here and how do we go for that holistic care of uh, of the patient. So for yourselves as clinicians and as educators, right, you're and, and you're both working in practice sites, you're also working educating students. So you're talking about how do we put this into actual practice so it works best for the, the patient that's coming into the pharmacy, but also for that pharmacist. What do you think this looks like from a active uh, concept. So, you know, when it comes to having conversation with patients about harm reduction, naloxone access, is this something that comes in, that comes up as a conversation for every time the patient comes into their local community pharmacy? Is it only happening when they're occurring with their primary care provider? Uh, I'd like to hear from both of you on how we really make these items kind of front and center so the conversations are done appropriately so that the patient is really on board. Because Marissa, I think you pointed to this already. We want the patient making that active choice for, for themselves on this, but we and Dan, to your point around naloxone access, want them to have the appropriate tools for safety. So I'll allow both of you here, really like to hear both of your thoughts on how we put this into practice. Yeah, so I think there's a there's a really great overlap here, but it's also very important that the way we the way we do it, there's a fine line um, between helping and hurting whenever we're talking about this. So kind of going back a little bit to what we've both talked about is, is this something that you do every time they show up to the pharmacy or they're coming to get their script? And I think that's a little bit dependent on which population you're talking about that benefits from naloxone. Um, and again, it goes back to those who are pres on prescribed opioids and those who are using opioids maybe recreationally, or even if they're using them medically but not prescribed and they're using something that they're buying off of the street, either or. So both of those populations really do need access to naloxone, but they do need to be treated differently because they're going to be accessible differently and they're going to have different needs. So when it comes to your uh, prescription patients who are coming in for refills, it, it's having a conversation with them, seeing how their pain is managed. It can be talking about naloxone if there's if that's a concern. It can be talking to them about their pain and how they're managing it and, and getting some ideas about where they're at and what other things they might need or or benefit from. 
there's a lot of different things that we sell even over the counter in a lot of times in the pharmacy, whether it's things like ibuprofen or your Tylenols, or it could be uh, your heating packs or braces or anything, anything like that. There's a lot of different things that are available to have those conversations to look and say, are we maximizing your uh, therapy for your disease state? And then from the, uh, from the recreational side, it's some of those patients are going to be coming in and asking about naloxone potentially. Um, some of them are going to be coming in and picking up other prescriptions. Some of them might not be going into the pharmacy really at all for um, for a prescription, especially if they're younger and less likely to be on a prescription entirely. So it's not necessarily just limiting it to those patients who are on uh, or picking up an opioid prescription, but it's it's making that knowledge accessible and having that information to say, hey, you can get naloxone here. We can, Let's have a conversation about this because how many of us know, um, even if we don't use opioids ourselves, um, how many of us know someone who ha has an issue with um, opioid use disorder or addiction or has suffered from it? And I think that's kind of the next level of the naloxone access issue is it's not just for those who are currently prescribed opioids or those who are currently uh, taking opioids. It's something that really every Everyone can and and should have and know how to administer the same way you see AEDs in places of public events and concert venues and schools. I, I encourage pretty much everyone to, to have access to them and to have that conversation. And I think the more we have that conversation up front, the more accessible it becomes and the more people we have thinking about, oh, well, that actually would be a good thing to, to have on hand and, and to know about and to ask questions about. So I think there's a there's a dividing line there of how to approach it and how you gain access to both of those populations. But I think at the end of the day, both of them really just boil down to the more access, the better. And regardless for why, regardless of why you need it or why you get it, um, the most important thing is getting it to you. And I just want to echo everything that Dan said in, in regards to having those conversations frequently. Um, I think have, you ask kind of like, should it be in the clinic? Should it be in the pharmacy? I think it should be really anywhere and everywhere, because I, I will say it's not common practice, I don't think, to discuss these types of things with patients in clinic. And and I think there still is, well, no, I know there still is a stigma related to naloxone and, you know, access to naloxone and opioid use disorder. And I always say, if we could just get rid of stigma, we would we would fix everything. We'd fix HIV, we'd fix opioid use disorder, every, nothing would be an issue anymore. So I think really, you know, having the conversations with the patients as much as you can. So I always recommend if it's just a patient being seen for pain, you know, I think that's where we, we are lacking the education is the patients who are on opioids for chronic pain and who've been on them for, for a while, you know, oftentimes no one's ever spoken to them about what is opioid use disorder, what is naloxone, having that conversation, you know, every time you see them, making sure they're aware, you know, opioid use disorder is a very normal side effect of people who are on opioids you know, long-term and it's, it shouldn't be anything you should be, that should be any stigma around. It should be something that you should be aware of. It can happen. If it does happen, we can, we can manage that. There's no issue with that. Just let us know we're here to help you regardless. Oftentimes patients, when you do offer the naloxone, you know, they're like, well, I don't use op opioid recreational, use it for my pain. And you have to explain, you know, well, here's why we're providing the naloxone. We're providing it for your safety. Just like if someone had a peanut allergy, we provide them an EpiPen. You want to have this on hand, talk to your family about it, talk to your friends about it so everyone's aware of what it is and we can use it.
And if you ever walk by someone who might need it, you can save their life and having those conversations as to this is why we're giving this to you and really trying to provide it to everyone now who are who's on opioids or chronic pain or opioids and concomitant therapies that might increase their risk for overdose. I will say most of most patients who have opioid use disorder or things like that have had the education on naloxone and are actually pretty familiar with naloxone access and how to use it and those types of things, which I think is fantastic. Um, so encouraging, you know, patients to still access naloxone, providing patients naloxone whenever they need it and helping spread education to, especially those who are on it, opioids for, for pain indications. I think that's really where the education is lacking right now. Another area where it's lacking is in the prescriber area. So providing prescribers the education on how to counsel patients on naloxone. I think often prescribers are, are you know, hesitant to even bring it up because they feel like they might insult their patients because of the stigma associated with it. Um, so trying to explain to providers, okay, this is this should never be a stigmatized thing. I think everyone should have naloxone. I carry it just like Dan does. Here's how you have the conversation to provide awareness on why we're giving naloxone to them and the benefit of having it on hand. So not only is it at the patient level, but the prescriber level is where we're really focusing education as well. And I, I just want to add to that. There's one of the things we kind of keep coming back to, and it, it's really important, I think, for any pharmacist who really wants to educate themselves and improve on how we're really providing this care is not just that stigma, but this unfortunate almost battle that's been created in healthcare just by how how we've managed pain and at the same time how we've managed addiction. And unfortunately, both of those are areas where we really lack effective, adequate care right now for the majority of patients afflicted by either one of those disease states. And I think that's unfortunately kind of pitted a lot of patients almost against one another. Um, so that conversation of uh, if you're talking to someone who uses opioids long-term for pain and you talk about naloxone, there's almost an initial, not for everyone, but many times there's an initial defensive response of, oh, no, 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 I'm on this for uh, medical reasons. I'm not I'm not an addict. I'm not this or that. And it's those kind of, it's because of that underlying stigma and it's because they are, a lot of patients are afraid of having that therapy stopped or things changed or things being done inappropriately, that it's very hard to have those conversations without accidentally offending them or scaring them that you are, you are this person who has a lot of power in that relationship there. Um, and they don't want you to take away the thing that might've given them their life back. And that's a reasonable fear because it happens all the time. So it's understanding that dynamic and also at the same time being able to have that conversation and where we can change it around to say how what we're actually doing it for, that we want them to keep want this to keep them safe, but also recognizing that uh, someone who's on opioids and has a prescription and fills naloxone does not mean that they are inappropriately using their opioids. It means that they are taking uh, precaution. Um, I even want to give naloxone to prescriptions post-surgery. Um, you see how many people will have a, a teenager or someone in their family find an old opioid prescription or something like that. There's, I Like Marissa said, if we could get rid of stigma, we'd get rid of a lot of issues that we see. Um, 
But I think, unfortunately, we live in that world where we do have that stigma currently. So it's the combination of we need to have these discussions, um, but half the battle is how do we have these discussions in a way that uh, works for the patients that tradi traditionally really are underserved. This gets to a big favorite topic of mine, and that's the role of the pharmacist in public health campaigns and general public education, right? You're you're a pharmacist on the job for whatever your shift is at the pharmacy, be it your community pharmacy in your hospital, your clinic, but there's so much more of a role that you have outside of that as well and and really promoting good appropriate care. I know uh, both of you brought up references to you know use of an EpiPen, right? And that's something that's pretty normal. And most people have had some familiarity with if someone's having an allergic reaction, has an EpiPen, that's there. Another example that I think of that maybe not to that same extent as far as how rapidly it can change or evolve, but most people going through elementary school, middle school, you've seen a kid in gym class use a, you know, albuterol rescue inhaler, right? Where it's just, it was a known item. People figure out they may now granted rescue inhalers often get misused uh, as far as appropriate administration, but it's the same sort of thing with naloxone, right? It's a newer treatment. It's increasing some of the availability. So that, that coupled with stigma around opioid and drug use, there's going to be some barriers to get over, but I could very easily see, you know, a world or nation state, what, wherever you're going to be a place where uh, use of EpiPen, access, rescue inhalers, naloxone, et cetera, all of those can become uh, pretty basic training elements for things like first aid training or, uh, you know, training in schools, um, even, you know, introductory classes in college, et cetera. So a lot of work to do. And uh, Dan and Marissa, I thank both of you for coming on today to talk about this. It's a really serious uh, a topic and it's ultimately, Dan, to your point, Marissa, to your point, we've covered this in prior episodes. It's about how we improve patient care and getting people medications that they need because when you know medications are taken the right way, it can go to help improve their care and their well-being. Uh, we also need to make sure we're using these medications appropriately and, and treating people the right way. So thank you for adding all of that commentary. We'll, we'll now go ahead, we'll, we'll close or move to close our episode and we'll we'll get to some our final question here and this is going to be this is meant to be non-pharmacy but often has some ties into pharmacy dan and marissa you both have talked about how through your career and going from pharmacy school residency training moving to a new location etc you're both what i would classify as new practitioners so maybe you're spending a year two years in the same place moving somewhere new that's a new phenomenon for many student pharmacists or young pharmacists, but that's something that can happen kind of throughout the rest of life. So I'd like to hear from the both of you, what are your tips? What are your tricks? What are your recommendations on how to be successfully moving through those uh, stages of your career to relocating? It could be something about making new friends. It could be about travel tips or moving tips, et cetera. Uh, but I'll, I'll let you provide your expertise to this question. And uh, Marissa, if you wanna get us started here, we'll uh, go ahead with that. Absolutely. So I always say just to kind of find your passion and follow that, and that will lead you really where you wanna go. And I, for example, in pharmacy school, loved learning about HIV and I love learning about pain. So when I was looking for next steps, I focused on you know residencies that could support both of those things for me. and some some people have to stay in certain locations, those types of things. Luckily, I was able to go really wherever I wanted to. So I, I went from Florida to Chicago, and that's kind of where I where I found my passion. And I can't do anything without mentioning my dog, as Dan's fully aware. So one thing I'm also very passionate about is animals. I actually debated 
veterinary school versus pharmacy school for a while. So, so one thing that I'm working on on the side now is training my dog to become a therapy dog. So the goal is to have my dog. His name is full name is Jaluka, which is named after an HIV drug, but we call him Luca. Um, full goal is to have him in clinic in helping our patients who inject drugs. So when we do have, we're working on, you know, increasing access to things like Suboxone treatments for those types of um, opioid use disorder within our health system. So if I could get my dog there to help provide some um, emotional support to not only our patients, but our practitioners as we, you know, try to increase access to harm reduction resources, I think that would be great. You know, finding your passion, following it, whether that's within your career or pulling, you know, your passions like dogs into your career, all of those things will lead you to the right spot. Thanks, Marissa. And Dan, how about for yourself? Yeah, I think uh, to try not to echo too much of what Marissa said and agreeing with kind of following your passion and going and doing what you enjoy and what you believe in, my advice is kind of just to do it your own way. Um, because I remember in pharmacy school, I always heard professors or people that would come in with these awesome jobs and almost every time we would ask that person, okay, well, what did you do and how did you get there? And it drove me, uh, it drove me wild and everyone wild because their answer almost all the time was, oh, I kind of like built this, my, like it, like all there's, there's no, they almost gave you no reproducible path of, okay, we'll do this and do this and then this will happen. And it was infuriating because every one of us was like, we want your job, but we have no idea how to get it. And that's something I've reflected on a lot over the past couple of years. And now sitting here and uh, being able to teach at a school of pharmacy and, and practice in pain management and really have what I consider to be my dream job right out of the gate. If people ask me how, well, how did you, do you get there? I, I just kind of took it step by step and just started doing, doing what I wanted to do. Um, I did my residency in internal medicine because I found a place that uh, I loved that I had a lot of great patient care and patient interactions with and, and stayed there and I wanted to teach. So I did found a residency that had a lot of teaching available and just kind of made it my own. And then when I interviewed for a pain position, I said, Hey, this, my credential doesn't specifically say pain management. It says internal medicine, but here's what I can speak towards about why I'm still good for this position. And I think the more and more I've heard from other people is really that tends to be the way that that things go is how you get into a nice, innovative position that is what you want to do is the, re the secret is that there isn't a reproducible path. Um, if you're going to do something that's innovative, you can't just do the typical thing. You can't look for the roadmap. And that can be scary, but I always kind of advise try try not to let that be scary and let that be freeing and, and let that kind of be just some support for you as you're going through and making these decisions of, oh, I don't know what I want my PGY2 to be in or, or this or that. Um, Marissa, her PGY2 is in HIV and AMCARE, um, and then mine is in internal medicine. So we both have very different backgrounds, but I, I am biased, but I think we do a pretty darn good job of, of what we do. So I, I think that's the biggest piece of advice I try to give to students is don't, don't get stuck in this rigid model of you have to do this and then this and then this is just be yourself, do things the way you want to do and leave your mark on the profession. You have 
you're you have years and years of time to just to do your thing and, and make the profession the way you see fit. Uh, so don't be afraid to go out and do it. Those are both great responses. And, and Dan, it reminds me actually of a, a line from a song from one of my favorite bands that happens to be based out of Ohio. And, and the, it, the line in the song, it asked the question, where's my comfort in the undefined? And that's a great question, I think, for for everybody, because you're not not everything is going to go as planned. And uh, that's OK. It's actually kind of like treating a patient in a lot of ways. Right. And it's when you hit that bump in the road, what are you doing next to, to figure what figure out what's next? Dan, I'd add for you, you said, you know, you, you're kind of hitting the dream job at this point early in your career. Uh, I would note that the dream job for you in 10 or 15, 20 years may be something different. And you're doing a different dream job at that point. So keep pushing with that attitude. And uh, Marissa, for our listing audience, we do these over video. Uh, and I've been able to see a couple of times that Luca has has popped up on the video that's here. And Marissa, I think Luca would be a great therapy dog as well. So thanks for sharing those stories and that perspective. It's always really helpful to hear that. Now, final question for both of you, Marissa and Dan. If our audience has questions for you about our topic today, about harm reduction, about uh, naloxone access, or about anything else that we discussed, how can they reach you? You can always reach me. Uh, I'm probably very, very active on Twitter, uh, probably more active than I should be. I probably should spend less time on that bird app, but you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I think my handle is at aren't doctor because uh, I was very big originally on making sure that pharmacists were properly referred to as Dr. So-and-so. And now I don't like that name as much, but I'm stuck with it. So anyway, you can find me on Twitter. I respond to most most everything. And uh, that's probably the best and easiest way to find me. And I am trying to be better at Twitter, but I will get the notification. So you can also message me on Twitter. I have a very non-exciting handle. It's my first and last name. It's M-A-R-I-S-A-B-R-I-Z-Z-I, so at Marissa Brizzy. So I'm on there, and I'm happy to respond and, you know, get into that Rx Twitter world as much as I can. If she's not responding, just tweet at me because I spent yeah. two time on there, and then I'll bug her to get on Twitter. It'll, it'll work itself out. Exactly. Yeah. So, Dan, what you're saying is that Marissa's Twitter may get backlogged, kind of like the boat in the Suez Canal that I saw you tweeting about last week then, right? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I loved those memes. Yep. Half the time it's like, I, I find it funny. I, a lot of time will spend more time than I should trying to make a serious and like well thought out post that will be somewhat interacted with. And then I'll spend 30 seconds making a stupid meme. And then that's like, that's what people like. So <laughs> that all that those always tend to do better. So I, it's going to become a, a more of a pharmacy meme account in the future. There we go. Another area that you can contact me at is my dog's Instagram, which I'm very active on. It's at loco, L-O-C-O underscore F-O-R underscore Luca, L-U-C-A. So if you'd like to follow him on his journey to hopefully one day become a therapy dog, which right now he's at the point where it's like, this is very challenging. I don't know if we'll be able to get him to do X, Y, and Z perfectly, but you can also get a hold of me there. There we go. We've got 
pharmacist accounts. We've got dog therapy, future therapy dogs. We're going to be positive and proactive about this that we have yeah. reference for the show. So <laughs> appreciate that. Well, Dan and Marissa, appreciate both your time and expertise that you brought today. This was really helpful and uh, far exceeded my uh, already lofty expectations for this conversation conversation. So my sincere gratitude for that. And for our listening audience, uh, do want to make sure that you do more on Twitter than just check out Dan and Marissa. You can also contact us at the Quality Corner Show. You can reach us at Pharmacy Quality. If you've got ideas for future show episodes, if you have uh, ideas for guests or clinical topics that you would like us to talk about, please let us know. We'd love to hear that. You can also contact us at info at pharmacyquality.com. Sharing new information and meeting new guests is what we really like on this show. It gives us a special feel and allows us to introduce new topics and uh, and bring in and expand our growing network. So with that, I again appreciate you listening to the Quality Corner Show. And there is one final message from the PQS team. The Pharmacy Quality Solutions Quality Corner Show has a request for you. Our goal is to spread the word about how quality measurement can help improve health outcomes. And we need your help in sharing this podcast to friends and colleagues in the healthcare industry. We also want you to provide feedback, ask us questions, and suggest health topics you'd like to see covered. If you are a health expert and you want to contribute to the show or even talk on the show, please contact us. You can email info at pharmacyquality.com. Let us know what is on your mind, what we can address so that you are fully informed. We want you to be able to provide the best care for your patients and members And we wish all of you listeners out there well.